Welcome to the Everyday Sniper. You got Frank from Sniper's Hide, and we got another interview for you today. Uh, we got our Corona Containment episode six or something. I don't know. We're on like, I guess New York's on like day 37. But I want to introduce you guys to uh, Rob Manning. Rob's part of the Gun Digest sort of publishing team and group that I'm doing my book with. And Rob does the Glock uh, books. You're on your edition here. Let me get the title right. So I'm not messing you up there, Rob. It is um, the Glock Reference Guide Second Edition is the latest one. And that's Rob Manning. Rob, introduce yourself and say hi to everybody at the Everyday Sniper Podcast. Hey, man. How you doing? How's everybody uh, doing out there in the audience? We're all, we're all sitting at home in our pajamas. This is the pajama pandemic. <laughs> you know, they actually, I, I learned the other day, they have a word for that in... Uh, Scandinavia. There's actually, I, I forgot what it is, a word for sitting home alone, drunk in your underwear. There's nice. a specific word for it. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. I think we should have a word for that. Yeah. Too, too. Where, where's the various liquor guys with the, in <laughs> Finland over there? They, they should be able to tell us what it is. Dude, that's where I, that's where I was reading it at. It's nice. Nice. Yeah. So, <laughs> on um, our Instagram page. <laughs> Give, give a uh, uh, like I said, I got my book coming out through Gun Digest and through the, the the publishing team. They said, "Hey, Rob, you know, Rob's a former Marine guy. You know, you guys should get together." And we don't really talk handgun as much, although I do see as far as the Marine Corps side, the sniping side, precision rifle side, your handgun's an important tool that we tend to overlook. Uh, as I was saying to you, uh, you know, I, I've neglected my handgun lately just because we're chasing precision rifles so often, but give everybody a background, go into history, go into, you know, talk about yourself a little bit to, to intro, you, you know, as far as how you came up, how you got to be writing the, the, the Glock reference guides and, and, you know, just what brought you to today. Yes, sir. I will make a short story long <laughs> since, uh, since we're all sitting here with, with the, uh, the uh, coronavirus lockdown. We have nothing else to do, right? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I grew up in a small farming town in rural Wisconsin. Um, I grew up hunting, shooting. I didn't shoot as much as I would have liked to. Um, my none, neither of my parents uh, really were shooters, but my uncle was, and he, you know, kind of got me in a little bit. And I did a little bit with my uh, my stepdad and and my dad as well. Um, but, you know, my mom, my stepmom, none of them ever shot. So um, from an early age, though, I, I guess I was kind of drawn to, like, AR-15s and, and military-style rifles. I was kind of big into military surplus, stuff like that. And of course, uh, probably about, like, a, a week after I graduated high school, I went into the Marine Corps, where I, I spent, like, my first four years in the infantry. I was an uh, anti-tanker, a tow gunner. Um, so most people tell you not a true grunt, but we did, you know, a lot of places we went, we didn't have the tow weapon system. So we ended up doing, uh, 0311 type training and stuff like that. Um, but there, you know, I got to shoot the Madus, I got to shoot the Mark 19, um, the M60, even when I was over in Okinawa, we got to shoot the uh, M60. I carried it. What years were you, a, what years did, were you in? So I went in uh, 1990, and I got out in late 2000. Okay, so you were you were in you came in the year after after I got out. 
So yeah, all the same stuff. Let me. I got a quick to, to interrupt you really fast because it's kind of funny. Uh, with the toe side of things, uh, when prior to me going to stay and how I got into sort of the whole sniper thing is we went to New York for the reopening of the Statue of Liberty. Uh, when Reagan was doing the ceremony and, and, and they had the construction on it and took it all down. And then for 4th of July, they had that International Naval Review. And we have all our ships in, in, in New York Harbor. We're on the Brooklyn side of things. And, and they're letting uh, people come on for a dog and pony show. So the tow guys were there and they got the tow on the tripod uh, in their setup. And they kept turning the sights on. And now this is 4th of July in New York. It's pretty hot, summer, everything. Everybody's walking through, and the tow guys are giggling like crazy. So I go over to see what they're giggling at. The tow site can see through the women's clothes. And we're all, like, looking at them like heat and radiate. <laughs> so, that, that, so we were sitting there. As everybody's coming through, we're all taking turns and waiting for the right kind of person to walk through the line. And then we're 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 on the we're behind the toe and we're looking at it. <laughs> now it, it doesn't really see through clothing. It's just that certain parts of the body are warmer than other parts. Yes. <laughs> With us, it was seeing through clothes. Yeah, yeah. You know, I actually I had a similar thing. Um, I was over in Somalia, and we had in uh, Bardera, we had this one big tower in this outpost, and we put a toe site on there. So we could use the thermal to obviously look for people running through and especially at night. And uh, it was us Marines were there first. And then the army came a little bit after that. And the army brought these massive showers and the PX and all that stuff. And of course, also with the army comes females, which we hadn't seen. I think at this point we had been there a month and a half or so and uh, hadn't seen any American women for a while. So we, uh, <laughs> And they had a designated shower time where all the women would shower. So we would be up on the tower. And I probably shouldn't be saying this in this day and age now. Um, but the uh, we'd turn the the uh, scope around, the thermal, and look at the showers. And, of course, it was funny, but we couldn't really see anything through the showers. But, eh, it was funny. And one, one time they busted us. They came. There was, like, five of them. And they came out of the showers. And they pointed at us. And. There's like one of them was mad, but all the other ones were, were laughing and stuff. And I was I was kind of hoping one of them would flash us, but they never did. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, they, New York was a trip because what they basically said to most of us was, you know, like this. I was hanging with the stay guys because I I wasn't really assigned. I was supposed to be Bravo Company, but there was nobody there, and they and the battalion just said. You know, you 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 guys are are going on this tiger cruise up to New York. And, you know, from there, you're going to do the dog and pony shows. Well, then they were like, well, we're not going to do the dog and pony shows. We're not going to put the M40 out. Um, it, it, you know, so just go out, be seen. And what we all ended up doing is putting on our Bravo, you know, Charlie's. Well, we wore Charlie's mostly, but then we started wearing our alphas, actually. Um, we, were, we went out initially in our Charlie's, which are the short sleeve dress shirt. You know, nothing to it. And then we started realizing, you know, the fancier you look, the more drinks you got. So then we switched to alphas because it, it was getting us more, you know, than the Charlies were. The Charlies oh, yeah. were, were easy to overlook. The alphas, not so much. 
But um, yeah. you know, but yeah, that was that was a pretty funny time. So I interrupted you. So then you, you did your first four years in the infantry. You were a cat team guy, one of the combined arm guys. Um, it, it was that was toast part of heavy guns or or just weapons over there? No, we were actually part of uh, first tank division. Oh, you were part. You weren't even on the grunt side, so you were over with tanks. Oh, like LA. Right. You were, right. Were you at Lejeune? Um. No, I was at uh, Twenty Nine Palms. Oh, okay, even worse. Wow, you were at the stumps <laughs> yeah. the whole time. Which I, oh yeah, I enjoyed CACs. So, oh, I hate, I hate, I hate Twenty Nine Palms. That, it's like, you know, it's funny because people, oh, Twenty Nine Palms sucks. That's the worst place in the world. And they were there for a CACs for thirty days. I was there for three years. That place sucked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was good training for us because I, I went to CACs the one time. Um, and because I was in stay when I went and I was, a, I had rank and I was a corporal and I carried the radio a lot. I love the radio. Um, and so I got to drop all kinds of mines. I got to do, you know, bombing runs and jets, um, you know, things like that. So when we went to CACs, I actually was super active. So I, I, I never felt, I mean, we were out in the field the whole time, but that was the point. It's not like we were enjoying, you know, the base area of 29 Palms. Because there's nothing there. It's shit for us, you know. Um, but we were working. We were doing stuff that was stuff we, we weren't doing on the East Coast at Lejeune or even when we went overseas. So I actually really like 29 Palms. I agree that it's a good time out there. Yeah, you know, as far as the training aspect, um, especially if you're talking about combined arms, I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. Um, but you know, being stationary is, is kind of a different story. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, uh, then, so after your, your tow years, what did you do? Cause you were in for 10 years. So what did you do after your next enlistment? I, uh, I made a uh, Latin move and went into military intelligence. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love that. That was, that was my passion. And it's kind of funny because as a, a grunt, now, toes are kind of like the, the redheaded stepchildren of, of the infantry, and we, we're kind of rebels. We're the guys who, you know, question orders and, and do stuff and get in trouble. And, you know, we, we had, uh, just as an example, one of our uh, top sergeants, he uh, rolled the Humvee drunk out in a field exercise. So that's the kind of shenanigans that these guys are in, right? So it, being one of those rebels kind of made for a really good transition to Intel because in Intel, you know, you, you don't follow the, the, in the box thinking, you know, you want to think outside the box um, with analyzing, you know, day-to-day -day stuff. So it, it kind of helped having that kind of that tow gunner rebel background behind me. And, uh, but yeah, once I got into Intel, I just, I loved it. That was, that was my passion. When you get to see the fruits of your labor, on national TV, on the news channels and stuff like that, it is very rewarding. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. I mean, that that's that's a great thing is to kind of seeing your your work and your effort come to fruition at the end. I always enjoyed that. Is you know what I mean? You go you go out, you plan something, you're gonna go do it, then you follow it through, and then it's it's money, you know? Right. I was uh, at uh, my my last duty station. I was at. U.S. Central Command, and we kind of had a joke whenever uh, it was during the Bill Clinton era, and not not to get too much into politics here, but anytime something would happen, like with the uh, dress and the cigar and all that stuff, we'd uh, say, "Oh yeah, we're about ready to strike somebody again, or got a mission coming down the pipe, something to 
you know, wag the tail or something to get the, the media and the public's attention off what's going on with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, uh, you know, in, when you're in, though, people should say this because we do talk, poli- you know, there is a politic element to, to the military side in, in a weird way. We, did you ever, I never did. We never paid attention. We knew we liked Reagan because we were doing things. Like when I was in, I was in this really weird period where there was actually combat going on on a minor scale. I got combat action in 88. And so um, it, it was weird that these little things were flaring up and that Reagan was letting us operate. He, he liked to use the Marines as his tool, you know? And, oh, yeah, he and, loved Marines. Right, so that was the only time we ever, ever even looked at what was going on to say, this is cool, this guy's letting us work. Well, then, like, if you're just out training and you're out doing stuff and I'm not in the Gulf or I'm not in, you know, doing some of the other things, and um, it's like, we never thought about it. it, it I was the opposite, you know, I was always, I, I, really got into politics at a young age. Uh, I remember, for example, like in third grade, back in the 80s, we had little weekly readers we got. I don't know if you're familiar with those. But yeah, yeah. We actually had the Reagan uh, election on there, and I, I voted for Reagan in third grade, and I was a Republican the rest of my life. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, uh, I, and now, I mean, you know, and sometimes the, the Republicans, I'm almost afraid to associate with them nowadays, some of them, but I've always been very, very conservative. And that's most of the military, I would say. Even some of the guys who are Democrat and maybe, I don't want to say more liberal, but I, I think even those guys in the military are more conservative than the general public. Yeah, yeah. And, and now I can see, because now I think, the social media, the internet connects people more. So oh, I, yeah, I, I can see people thinking about it more than we did. Cause we right. didn't have, we, you know, we didn't have phones, Bluetooth. We weren't running around carrying radios in the field. Like guys will put like Bluetooth speakers, have their phones, do all kinds of stuff. Um, you know, and, and so it's, it's, uh, it's crazy. That, you know, that today, like I always say to, you know, guys, I'll talk to the, the new guys and everything. And it's like, hey, did you guys wear your Bluetooth speakers on a force march? You know, and, and are you doing this on that? And they do, you know, wow. and it's like, yeah, it, it's like I remember getting in trouble for wearing Israeli commando boots because they were out of spec. You know, I'm wearing unauthorized footwear in, in, yeah, in dur- crazy. right during a force march. And I got in trouble for it. You know, I got the wrong boots on. Now today yeah. they can get away with so much that way, but then they can't like, you know, I, I talked to people about some of the trouble that I got into and they would have been busted. Me, I kind of, they, they, they kind of laughed and said, Gally, knock it off. Don't do that no more. You know, that kind of thing. And, and, and here I'm causing all kinds of drama around the world and they're laughing about it today. These guys would be arrested for it. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. So Cool. So then you go to Intel, you go do this, and, and, and what do you do when you get out of the Marine Corps? Well, I got out, and I used my GI Bill and went to college, and I, I majored in political science, but I took a lot of uh, writing classes, a lot of English classes, some journalism classes. I almost uh, I, I considered for a while getting my degree in journalism, but I hate journalists. 
um, with my, you know, I don't know, with the military background, I guess, at least in, in my day, and I don't know what it's like nowadays with embedded uh, journalists and stuff like that, but back in my day, I, I felt like they usually painted us in, in poor light, and it's like in Somalia. For example, we had this one instance where a photographer was there. I have no idea what newspaper it was, but he, he took a picture of a, uh, there was a Marine uh, butt stroking a kid. And the butt is like hitting him right in the face. And, but, but they don't tell you though, they, you know, they kept that image of that one split second in time, but they didn't mention before that, that kid had just taken a rock and bashed a girl in the face. You know, they don't tell you that side of it. And right, I, right. I felt, you know, and, and from that and, and from other stuff to other run-ins, I guess I had with, with the journalists and stuff. I, I don't know. I just always left a sour taste in my mouth. So I kind of look at them kind of like lawyers and stuff like that. I just really didn't want to become a journalist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I've always had an interest in writing and I probably started writing back. I had my little fiction stories back in like fourth grade. Um, I've always loved writing. So I, you know, and actually when I, first got when i first graduated i wasn't exactly sure what i was going to do um and i was i knew i wouldn't be a journalist and my wife and i had just had uh probably about like two months before i graduated we had our first kid um and so i wasn't sure exactly what i was going to do and honestly gun writing was wasn't even really on the radar but i used to have uh i probably had like 15 different subscriptions to different gun magazines. I always have when I was a kid. I remember, here's a child of an 80s story. I remember going to my elementary school library. And by the way, in my small town, elementary, middle school, and high school were all one building. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we, we only had a thousand people in my entire hometown. So um, but anyway, I remember at, at recess or, or study hall or whatever, sitting in the school library reading Guns and Ammo magazine. Um, they had guns and ammo, NRA, all that stuff. And that was to me pretty cool. But anyway, so I wrote a letter to the editor of one of the magazines. It was a digital magazine. And the response I got from the publisher was, Hey, you write better than most of my writers. You want a job. So that kickstarted my writing career. Oh, okay. <laughs> And, and did you did you go to the gun industry immediately? I'm, I'm sorry, I had a yeah, I was gonna say, you kind of oh, is that what I was, gonna, for a second. I was wondering why there was a guys can't hear it because it, it, it sounded it sounded empty, but I thought right. you just ended the conversation right there. I was like, oh, okay, he's done talking. No, <laughs> no, well, no, I had a call coming in, it kind of messed me up. Oh, gotcha. So, uh, yeah, so anyway, I started writing for AR Guns and Hunting Magazine, it was a digital magazine, uh, from Mark Hollis. And um, from there, I got hooked up with Gun Digest, and so I wrote for their magazine a little bit. Um, then, let me see. Still, I still hadn't got into that. See, now my, my, my house phone's going off. They're looking for you. Yeah. Hate to do it, but I got to hang up on them. So, anyway, um, mine's going blank here. All right. You're gonna yeah. Yeah. So no, out. you, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I get you. So you were, you were, right, so, you were working for gun digest in. Okay. So let's, before we get to that, let, what got you to like doing, like, it, we'll go to your book, the, uh, the Glock, uh, reference guides. 
Have you done other reference guides other than the the, the Glock ones, or what got you to? I've done. I, I did a CZ book. Okay, I, I knew did you did CZ. Yeah, and so how we do got you want to grab that? I and was, just I'll pause you for a second, and you can grab that and just tell them to uh, stop calling you. <laughs> I, I actually I just picked up a hunt up. If they call again, I'll do that. Okay. Um. Yeah. So, so what? I was I was writing for Gun Digest magazine for uh, Doug Howlett, and they came. He, he said, "Hey, man, how'd you like to write a book?" And I'm like, "Sure." And there were two books they were looking to write. One was the AR-15 book, and one was a Glock book. And at the time, I really wasn't that into Glocks. And I, I'm a huge AR guy, so I, you know, I was hoping for the AR book, and they ended up assigning me the Glock book. So I uh, wrote the Glock book, and shortly after, I actually wrote, I co-authored a book with Doug Howlett, The Shooter's Bible Guide to the AR-15, which was separate from the Gun Digest book. Um, so I, I co-wrote that with him. I finished the first edition of the Glock book and then probably and that sold really, really well. And then probably I think about a year after that, I wrote the uh, CZ uh, book of CZ for Gun Digest. What, um, what kind of um, research and uh, like, do you have to, are you going to Glock when you, let's just focus on the Glock one for right now. But what kind of this is because this would be interesting to me and maybe the guys out there because I know everybody knows the reference guys. I know they know the shooter Bible stuff and the, and even the AR-15. There's probably people who have it. But what kind of research and what kind of support do you get from Glock to do what would be considered a reference guide? Well, so Glock uh, back then when I first started the first edition was notorious for not helping anybody out, not really communicating with anybody. Um, so... I kind of went into it with that mindset, but they actually ended up being pretty helpful. I mean, there's a lot of uh, hurdles and red tape. There's only so much they'll ask. They'll, they'll let you ask. They're not going to give anything remotely close to any kind of trade secret. If there's any question whether it should be something they're going to give out, they're not going to give. <laughs> what it would you. what would be a trade secret for Glock? Like uh, or well, something that, they would say I, I, no. Like what would you think, or what would be something they considered a trade? Probably like a manufacturing process, or maybe a little snippet of history. I, I maybe well, I don't like, even know like for, the exact recipe of the plastic. Not even that in depth. More, you know, it's just anything basic. They're just not really going to tell you if if it's not something you can glean from like looking at the gun or holding the gun in your hand. They're probably not going to give you that info. Okay. Okay. So, but uh, Pat Sweeney. Uh, another writer for Gun Digest. He was a huge help when I wrote my first edition. I, he was a good reference for me. He because he had written a couple Glock books. The I think it was Glock Deconstructed, and he also has the Gun Gun Digest Book of the Glock. Um, so he was a, a, a really good reference for me, and he he helped me out, kind of gave me some pointers. But it's the Glock book was really tough, the, especially the first edition, because you basically have like. 30 40 different models of glock and they're all the same so how do you write like 20 different chapters of these different models that are all the same gun you know just the barrel's got a different size hole down the middle i mean that's it's, that's the big difference i mean there's a little bit of difference in size of the frame and stuff like that but it's all the same design so you know keeping it interesting that was the challenge of the book yeah, yeah. Well, because it's to me, a reference guide would be a manual, you know, um, like a you know a VCR manual kind of thing, where it doesn't have, and 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 to kind of get into this with you a little bit is when they when they talk to me about doing my book, I you know I'm 
I'm known fundamental Frank on here. I do a lot of ba- I do basic classes. I'm 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 your day one kind of instructor for precision rifle. And so like I didn't want to do the same old book over and over again. And so what I did is I mixed in some Marine Corps stories uh, you know, boot camp and then uh, the, the training schools and sniper school and then the, the golf uh, floats and the different things like that. And so, um, I, you know, I wanted to split up the technical side of things so it didn't read like a manual, you know, that it still had reference pages and it still had the, the, the content people are looking for, you, you know, formulas and things like that and the, and the wind stuff we do. But I just didn't want to go in the in the direction of it be reading to me like a manual for your TV. Right, right. Because that, that would put you to sleep. Nobody wants to buy that book. And so for me, this and even though it's called a reference guide, I really tried to balance out the technical aspect of it with other things like anecdotal stuff and, and history and some of those aspects of it. Because I just technical data. That's not really fun, you know? Right. Right. You know, and I do tend to be like a nuts and bolts nerd about guns with some stuff. Like I want to analyze, like you have like the G19 or excuse me, the G17 and the G22, for example, basically like the same gun, same platform. One's a 40 caliber, one's a nine millimeter. And I want to know like what kind of design elements went into that, the, the engineering process that the slide is going to still work reliably with a much higher pressure cartridge, you know? And so those aspects. And so I do like some, did a lot of weighing of, of parts like, well, this part is a little bit heavier than that part. What do they do to make it heavier and and things like that, you know? And so like, for example, the G17, G19, G34, uh, they're nine millimeters. The, uh, the G34 basically has like the same frame as the G17, but a much longer slide. So, you know, I'm interested in what did they need to do to that slide to make it work reliably with the same ammo, same slide, or same frame, but the slide is longer, you know, those aspects. So where do they shave metal off and, you know, where do they do certain things to get it to work reliably? And I do get into that some in the book, um, actually probably quite a bit, but, you know, I, I wanted to balance that out and not make it boring. And from what I'm told, I, I did a pretty decent job. The the first one, I mean, it sold really, really well. So, and that's, uh, you know, why they asked me to write the second edition. Do, do, do you find, I mean, just talking, because I, I looked at it this way, you know, because when you go back to a book, people get the books to put on shelves and to do different things. I think we look, people look at books different today. Now there's the Kindle side, which I don't include when you say a book. You know, because we do have like you can go on uh, onto Amazon right now and you can pre-order and get the Kindle, I think, of my book. Um, you know, it's all kind of going forward within the next couple days. But the Kindle shows active. So people read a Kindle one way, but to me, read a book a different way. And so I sort of wrote it in my mind where you're taking it in chunks and you're not reading it cover to cover because it is more of a reference manual than a novel, you know? So does that, do you look at it the same way? Cause I like, so this is the first time I ever really wrote a book like this. I I've done iBooks and I don't mm-hmm. consider an iBook. To, I, I, when I wrote an iBook, 
for uh, Apple. I did two of them, short, very tiny, just to test it because you only give them away for like ninety nine cents and a dollar. And um, but I wrote those more like I wrote a website. This I you know for go ahead. I'm sorry, you go, you go finish your. Oh, I was just going to say, I wrote those books kind of the same way I build a website. Well, then, um, you know, I wrote this book thinking that the person's going to take it in chunks. And, yeah, and, I mean, being a reference guide, I, you know, they're going to, for me, I mean, hopefully, my, my thought or my intention would be hopefully that they would read it cover to cover first. Um, but then it's a reference guide. So if you have a question about a particular model or something like that, then it's broken down into different chapters. You know, I've got the nine millimeter chapter, the 10 millimeter chapter. I do have a chapter on like maintenance and the armors course. And um, I use the knowledge from the armors course and, and wrote a, you know, wrote a section on uh, buying used Glocks and what to look for, things like that. Nice. Um, and then I, you know, got into the history too. But so, you know, for me, I guess, and I'm a huge reader but I would say probably like 99.9% .9 of the books I read nowadays are all digital. But these books I wrote with a hard cover, I'm, I'm sorry, a, a, a hard copy book in my mind. It wasn't written specifically for digital. Um, but I, I'm assuming that's probably how most people read their books nowadays. Just because, I mean, it's so practical. I, I can carry like a thousand books on my Kindle or my iPad or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and that's and, and I just saw like I think there's a shift and now this this sort of quarantine, I think, is a great way to bring books back around for people and to and to do this different stuff. So I, I really do see like like I said, like your book is a book that goes on a shelf. You know what I mean? It's it's this is the reference guide. You go access it when there's the big questions and and, and it's 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 kind of it becomes that collector's item and, and put out there where, you know, to me, stuff that's written on the digital side is more uh, like flip book reference. Oh, I need something specific. I'm going to go to, you know, chapter eight. And, right. and, and the, the rest of it's sort of irrelevant in what I'm looking for. And the same thing, I mean, with a reference guide, but I don't know. I just think that we're absorbing the 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 books versus digital and and the way we're absorbing this information has changed, you know. Oh yeah, most most definitely, most definitely. So it, it just kind of uh, it's it's an interesting process to me because honestly, you know, last year was a crappy year for me. I had some really weird shit going on and and all that, and then kind of putting the book together in between, and then when it got to the end, like everything sort of fell away where now my, my brain opened up a little bit and it's like, okay, now I got to kind of really tighten this back up. So it was, it was, to me, it was, it was a uneven process because of my personal life in the, in the year I had. So mm -hmm. I, I, I feel I didn't get to enjoy the entire book process the way I could have had my, my brain been in a better zone. Yeah, that's understandable. I, you know, for me, I have to get into that zone you speak of. My, when I write a book, I'm, I want, you know, as far as my writing aspect, my writing life, it's all encompassing for me. Um, it's, I'm not a good double tasker. And so for me, like when I wrote the Glock reference guide and then, and the CZ book was a, a huge challenge as well from a totally different aspect of the Glock. 
Um, and that one, you know, it's, you kind of get into that way of thinking and your mind is just based on, on that company or that, you know, their products or whatever. Um, for me, you know, like the CZ book, it, for example, is huge. It's got a lot of history in it. And the hard part about that book is that CZ has made so much stuff. And, but, but half of what they made was done in the communist era. So a lot of that information is, is either gone or it's very, very hard to get. And calling, I, I called uh, the uh, department, basically the Czech version of the Department of Defense, and to try to get some information on some of the guns, they, the army, and, and, it, and it's stuff they don't even carry anymore. But that mindset is still there to some extent of like, why is this guy calling us and we're not going to give out information and, you know, things like that. And that's, that was the challenge I saw with the CZ book. Huh. That Well, I can. Yeah, people do kind of get very in the gun industry, especially we tend to get um, uh, paranoid, I guess, is a way of putting it in. in <laughs> why, why is this guy asking this question? Right, right. You know, so I could see that. But to me, it would it, you would actually have to be to do a reference guide in my mind. You would have to have that reporter's background. You know, oh, yeah. you, you know, yeah. because you're digging up that kind of information, you're doing that research and you're getting all that. So it's interesting. Now, it's funny. The first handgun I bought out of the Marine Corps was a Glock 19. I still have it. It's a three digit serial number uh, 19. And in, in the um, the Magwell looks like a serrated knife right now because I've done it's so worn out. Uh, and I've done so many reloads. I've chipped and chunked away pieces of the Magwell. Oh, wow. And so it's like a it's like a, a serration, but I have a first gen Glock 19 to this day, and it was the first Glock that I bought in I think 90 or 91. What year did the 19 come out? Uh, let me check real quick. I do not remember the exact date. But yeah, it's 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 in my, it's in my you know what your readers can buy my book and they in, can find it, out. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Sales pitch. <laughs> you know the uh, the Gen One G19s are are fairly uh, I don't want to say rare, but they're harder to find. There weren't as many of the Gen One G19s made. Yeah, mine. So, my, mine is like I said, mine's a three digit serial number. It was the um, it was the first year they came out. And uh, it, it it's it's still it, it looks every bit of that old because it's worn, um, it, and so it's uh it's pretty funny. But like I said, I've I've reloaded it so many times that it, it, I've just turned it into a serration on the bottom, where you probably well, can cut bread with it. Nineteen eighty eight. That's when the G nineteen went into production. Okay, but they didn't hit the street until after that. Uh. Right, because I probably not too far after that. Yeah, because mine was ninety, I think, is when I got it. Yeah. Um. You know, and nobody wanted the the combat Tupperware at the time. And, you know, and, those gen the Gen ones in particular have become pretty collectible. Um. I and that was one of the things when I write a gun book, I want my hands on the gun if possible. Mm -hmm. So through that, through the first edition, I I fired pretty much every model made gen and, and with the g17 i fired gen one gen two three and four had just come out but the uh gen one and gen two i actually had to pay a little bit more than i thought i was going to pay for those and i know since then they've went up even more huh 
That's crazy. Like I said, this one is so beat to hell, it has no value. Um, I haven't, I, I purposely not done a lot of upgrades. Or, uh, I mean, because that's the thing, with like, like to get into that side of it, the upgrade side of Glock. All my other Glocks that I use, any Glock that I run, and I run them in matches, like the Sniper's Hide Cup we have has a handgun component. And um, I run my Glocks, and, and now because my eyes are so shot and I have astigmatism and all this other crap in my right eye and I'm left eye dominant and right handed. Actually, I'm ambidextrous, but, um, the, the, I, so I just run the red dots and it makes my life easier, but mine are zevved out. I have Zev upgrades on almost all of my other Glocks that I run. Um, you know, the, uh, and, and Zev makes great stuff. Um, there's, there's a lot of aftermarket companies They make great stuff. But for me, after going through the armors course a couple of times, my carry guns, I don't modify. Uh, with the exception of sights, but as far as internal parts, I, I don't I don't modify my carry guns. Well, it can, not even like because um, I know I lighten the triggers because my hand's small and and if the triggers are a little too crazy, I'll pull the the, the gun off target a little too much um, because of my size. Um, so I always go for the lighter trigger. And the Glock has what they have. They have the two trigger weights you can order from them. Is that correct still, or did they change yeah, it? Yes. So yeah. I always go for the lighter trigger, but then I try to swap it for sort of the best trigger I can get. So I, I'm 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 definitely one who defaults to triggers, um, mainly because I know it's a compromise for me for uh, getting my hand right with, with, with the handgun. You know, um, even like 1911, because like I I qualed in the Marine Corps one time with a 1911 before we switched to Berettas. Wow. Yeah, and and um. The, 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 like you can get a really great 1911 trigger, but the shoe is too long a lot of times. <clears throat> so if you look at like my custom 1911s I have, and I have a bunch of them, um, the trigger barely looks like a sliver coming out of the frame, mm -hmm. you know? So for me, that's a big component for handgun because my hand is so damn tiny when it comes to, uh, you know, accessing the triggers and stuff like that, where I can choke up a, a little bit on my precision rifles. And now we get the adjustability with some of our, our comp guns have the, uh, uh, the trigger shoe that adjusts forward and back. So for right. me, I, I tend to default to trigger upgrades. You know, I, I just, I, I don't, with, I, I will with other guns, but not my carry guns. And the, and the reason, you know, in the, when you're talking about like the 1911 and even AR-15s, most of the parts are metal, uh, some sort of alloy, something like that. So metal parts are making contact with metal parts. But then when you get in the aspect of Glocks and a lot of the polymer handguns, you have the way Glock designed it. And we talked about it in the uh, armors course. You have you always want to make sure when you're putting parts together, you have metal on metal and plastic on plastic. And a lot of the aftermarket parts violate that. And you're putting plastic uh, polymer on metal. And it's just going to create uneven wear and it's going to create the polymer on polymer is going to have a certain lubricity to it. Sure. Whereas polymer on metal is not. And the tolerances on these are very, very fine. And they were just, these tolerances were designed into the gun. And when you have that additional wear that hasn't been accounted for, that's when you have breakages and issues and things like that. And that's why for a carry gun, I steer away from that. 
Nice. I get so, I, you know what? And I would have never thought about that. And I, and I would have never looked at that because like I said, I look at my handgun as like a necessary evil in a tool. Like it's just there to make noise until I can get to my rifle. It's there to get you your rifle. Yeah. Yep, yeah. Exactly. And, and so the, 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 the idea that there's, there's these aftermarket parts are sort of violating a core principle of a Glock design. That's kind of a good thing to know. So someone can go out there and seek out a part that, is actually correct. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, that's, that's something I would have never thought of, but it's sort of, you know, and, and it's funny because we've been talking about with, with other things is diagnosing problems. And, you know, like I just did an interview, which this is going to follow with Frank green from Bartland barrels. I mean, great interview. And we're talking about problems. People see inside a barrel and the issue is you really can't see or measure inside the barrel properly. So you run into these issues where you're trying to diagnose an issue and you know it's the barrel. But you can't give somebody the, the exact cause to say that piece of rifling is, is flawed right there. Or you, you had a fire crack that pulled the chunk out. And yeah, with a bore scope, you would see a big chunk missing. But you're really not going to be able to measure your lands and grooves and see if if there was a, a microscopic chip on a tool that's screwing one of your grooves up, and and so it it's it's interesting that there's these ideas behind a, a Glock design that hasn't trickled out to the public in my mind, you know, in that way, like hey, don't do that, that's a bad idea, you know, and and it just seems weird that with so many aftermarket parts. That Glock doesn't say avoid that guy because he's violating a core principle. Right. And they, you know, and they really should. It's something as simple as like the cover plate. You know, somebody might want to put a slide cover plate, maybe it has like the Punisher logo or something like that. Uh, those are generally going to be made out of aluminum for the aftermarket parts. Whereas the Glock part, the OEM part, is has the polymer surface. So when you have the plunger which is making connection with that slide cover plate. If it's aluminum, that's going to create additional wear. Eventually those tolerances are going to get out of, out of whack. I mean, there's a, you know, it might not for sure, but there's a possibility. And that's why for me with my carry gun, I'm not going to do that. Okay. So what do you, what, what do you run in like everyday carry? What's something out there that you're looking at? Um, like, are you running a 43? Are you running something bigger? Where, where are you going with, with your everyday carry in a Glock? Well, for me, and actually before I go, I want to give a shout out to Bartline Barrels. They're located like 15 minutes up the street from me. So awesome barrels. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, the um, I kind of go back and forth a little bit. So my kind of my general purpose, like carry gun is a G19. And I deviate from that a little bit depending on the situation. I do like the G48 that just came out, and I kind of look at that as like a 1911-style Glock because it's, it's a single-stack 9mm. It kind of has a, the general uh, slimness of a, of a, a 1911. So I, I will kind of go to the G48 a little bit. Um, currently, I'm carrying a G32, which is the compact G19 size in the 357 SIG, and that's what I've been carrying lately. Okay. With, wh why the three fifty seven Sig? Um, more of short with I, a little like, punch. Yeah, and and I think it's uh, a little bit flatter shooting, a little bit more reach. Um, and during the in Wisconsin, we have have winter, obviously, 
And winter parkas that are, especially downfilled winter parkas, are actually a little bit, they, they affect the bullet a lot more than people realize. And so for me, for during winter carry, I, I prefer having a little bit more punch and not a big fan of the 40. Um, but I, I love the 357 SIG. I think it's an outstanding cartridge. And I, I kind of see a little bit of a resurgence in popularity with it, yeah. at least amongst us gunwriter nerds. No, and, and, and I've noticed that as well, which is why I kind of jumped in on that, because I've noticed that that coming around myself. And I, I don't I don't pay attention enough on the handgun side of the world to know why it's coming back around. Um, but I have seen the 357 SIG mentioned coming around more so. Um, so that's an interesting, but I totally get the heavier clothing side. And I like the idea that you're um you're you're looking at summer, winter clothing in the different, you know, your loadout is changing based on our everyday life and the conditions right, around right. us. Oh yeah. And that's, I mean, that's a huge consideration is the weather and how, how, if, if there is an attacker or somebody, what are they going to be wearing? But then it's, you also have to take into consideration. What am I wearing? And you know, what, what am I going to? So if I'm just like schlepping around town um, on a summer day, I'll, I'll typically have on like a t-shirt uh, tucked in with a, like a uh, button up shirt outside so that, you know, I could, Pretty much conceal pretty much anything I want to carry a G19 or whatever, and that's good to go. But there might be a situation where I don't have that overshirt, the the button up, and it's just a t-shirt. So in that circumstance, I want something that's thin and, and tight to my body. Um, I usually I prefer outside the waistband because when when I wake up, I, I strap on and I don't take it off until I go to bed. So I'm carrying all day and I really don't like inside the waistband. To me, it's like walk around with a, a brick tucked in your, the side of your pants and it's just not comfortable for all day carry for me. Um, so I, I like outside the waistband. Now, sometimes I will appendix carry on occasion. I like the, how quick that is to access. Mm -hmm. what, what, what direction you going with holsters? Are, are, are you looking at where you're outside carrier? Are you looking at leather? Are you looking at a Kydex composite? Which direction are you going with your... Well, I, I don't typically... I, I love leather holsters, but I usually don't carry them just because I, I do think it's a little slower on the draw than Kydex. So I'll typically carry Kydex. And there's several companies that I, I carry that I've used. Uh, one of the ones, actually, for me, one of the most comfortable ones is the Alien Gear holsters. I, they're with with the um, the uh, fusion of that neoprene on the inside. Those are extremely comfortable. Okay. So I, I've been carrying their outside the waistband holster uh, quite a bit lately. Um, and another thing I like about Kydex too is since it's a thinner material, I feel like it prints a little bit less than leather which will tend to be a little bit thicker nice nice and it's a reason one of the reasons i ask is we have a guy on my site on sniper's hide who's been doing leather stuff and i actually just had him make me a leather holster for my iphone um nice because with some of the pants and everything and then and i've, I've actually kind of skinnied up a little bit and so uh with the belt and and i just if i put my iphone in my dang pocket it's pulling my pants down and so I basically said, hey, I've seen them like through Facebook ads. I'm like, hey, dude, can you make me an iPhone holster? And he, he put uh, the Marine Corps logo on it and, and um, you know, the whole thing. He put a sniper's hide one. So now I have a, a, a leather holster for the iPhone and it's super comfy for the day like that. So just wondering 
because I have leather holsters are comfortable. I, and I love leather holsters. Yeah. But I was, I was going through a, a training course and one of the things that was pointed out is that on the draw, a lot of times you're just not as quick as Kydex. Sure. And um, I can see they can that. They paint up a little bit, you know, but the, um, yeah, I, and I, I, I do own, you know, quite a few different leather holsters. So for a while, and one thing I was going to get to, and I kind of get off track. So you were talking about my background. Uh, back in 2016, I had just finished writing the CZ book, and I was contacted through LinkedIn, um, asking me if I wanted a job as a magazine editor. So uh, Gunworld Magazine, who was owned by Engaged, I ended up applying for that job, and I was editor for almost three years there. Um, until engaged, they shut down probably like seventy percent of their magazines. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just gun magazines; they they had like an entire spectrum of magazines. So they had like home and garden type stuff, uh, tops baseball card, you know, collectors magazines, uh, street cars, all those different ones. And then they had I think it was like eight different gun magazines, and they shut down almost all of them. I think there's just one left right now. Um, so, but being a magazine editor, I would oftentimes get boxes, things I didn't even ask for. I would get boxes of holsters and things like that, which, you know, it's, it's awesome because you get to try out different stuff and you get to see what really works, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's, I guess, one of the the benefits. And that's kind of one of the things I fuse, you know, like, you know, the kind of the Spider-Man joke of with great power comes great responsibility, I kind of felt like as a editor slash gun writer, my responsibility was like, I have all this stuff and I need to let people know, you know, what's good, what's bad, what works. And that was, you know, I guess one of the blessings of, of being in that position is that I got to try out all sorts of different stuff. So I really got to key in what works for me. And I stress that because everybody's different and everybody has the preferences. I, I will say that um, we, we do get a ton of unsolicited products and, and you do feel a certain amount of like, Oh, you know, but sometimes we get them that aren't so good. And people, I, I, I mean, I get e- emails every single day based on my YouTube channel from all the Chinese knockoff companies that try to use YouTube influencers right. um, to, to sell their, you know, those cheap, either airsoft or AR type scopes. Hey, we love your videos. Use this AR scope. It's like, no, delete, delete, delete. So you do get that, but then you get some people who do just send it. And then it's like, well, where do you go with it? And so you do, people don't realize that you try so much stuff or you at least give it a look and say, hey, will this work for me to talk about and everybody out there? You know, and and it's, it doesn't always. I look like a hoarder in my office. Yes, me. So much stuff. Dude, my you know, office is awful. I got. I've even cleaned it up a little, and it still looks like a fucking junkyard. Yeah, but, and that's, that's. I'm glad you're not doing this video. I'm glad it's just audio. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, and and that's the thing. And now I use. Don't get me wrong. I use a lot of it as giveaways and stuff. Or you'll get. You know, like today with like scope reviews, the low end scopes, which the majority of the scopes that people are trying to send are you know, $1,500 or less. And so I send that to some of the guys on Sniper's Hide to do the reviews and look at that way. But then 
you know, it's like you do the review and they'll be like, oh, just use the scope. So I give them away. You know, somebody may write me and, oh, I'm trying to do this. And I'm looking and it's like, here, dude, here's a scope, you know, and, and our friends will call and say, oh, I want to build a gun. All right, dude. Well, here's a scope. I'll get you running. You know, so it, it, some of this stuff becomes like currency. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, and it's just it, it but, you, you you know, you try to do straight by everybody. But just the sheer number of inquiries is crazy yeah and you really get to weed out what's good and bad and i'll say you know and one thing i'll, I'll say though there is a lot of good stuff out there and even some of the stuff that's not as expensive and i'm, I'm talking gear in general not scopes in specific but i think the uh the uh just current manufacturing processes and the uh materials uh yeah, the technology yeah. and materials it's incredible now. And, and guns themselves are a great example. It used to be like to get a half MOA gun. I mean, it used to cost probably thousands of dollars. Now you can buy one for less than 500 bucks. And it's pretty consistent to be around three quarter, you know, one MOA. Some of them are even half MOA. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, you see a lot of the comparisons. I mean, the gun side's pretty good or the, the handgun side's pretty good at, you know, Hey, look at this $3,000 blah, blah, blah compared to this Rock River, you know, and, and you see that all the time and, and guys are, are going out and, you know, taking a $900 or less, even the 1911s on the big end. But now because you can get a $3,000 Glock, um, you know, they'll take like an out of the box one and then they'll take a tricked out one and they'll shoot them side by side and, and you know, find out where they start to deviate and, and the next thing you know, you know, the, 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 the accuracy is deviating around that 50 yard mark. And so it's like, well, okay, you know, what, what are the odds I'm going to be in a, you know, hundred yard fight over this. And that's where this 3001 excels, but all these other ones are doing great 25 yards and in, you know, yeah, yeah. So, you know, in my, in my experience, a lot of, and, and I probably shouldn't make this generalization, but. A lot of the pretty three thousand dollar guns are are Instagram fodder. You know, we got to take a pretty picture of a pretty gun. It's it's it gets back to user preference. You know, I mean the the basic stock Glock is going to do most of the stuff that people ask them. Now, of course, there's people who do it for a living, the competitive shooters and things like that. That's a different story. But for the average person, you know, an out of the box, not just Glocks, but pretty much any firearm out of the box is going to perform pretty well nowadays because honestly if it doesn't that company's probably not going to be around that long yeah exactly we got so much good equipment now that's why we have so many companies side by side in the in the field is so thick and deep because they i mean we are in the golden age of firearms i mean there you know i mean every year you go to shot show and there's like 50 new companies pop up and they're making you know a good solid product you know for the most part of course there's a couple lemons but for the most part, it's there's just a lot of good stuff out there. Yeah, and just to um wet some people's appetites because I don't talk about it at all that much. So um, you were saying before we came on, you're getting into AKs and stuff. Uh, I am. Give, I am. Give a brief little overview because we're coming in on the hour. It's been a great conversation. Just been flowing, man. It's been fun. Um, yeah, g- enjoyed this. Uh, give a little background on on what you're looking at to sort of whet people's appetites to go out and look at the AK side of things a little bit. Since they're sitting home in front of their computers all day, maybe it's something they can go, you know, scan the internets for. You know, I really think the, at least in my mind, 
and I, I'm sure this is pretty common. I think the AK is a little bit misunderstood because, you know, the first thing you always hear is, well, the accuracy sucks and this sucks and that sucks. And, you know, it's, it's reliable. And those are all things, uh, I think, myths that have been perpetuated. And even the reliability has been to an extent because there's AKs out there that I've shot that aren't that reliable. And there's ARs that, you know, if you button them up, you close the, close the ejection cover, you have a mag in, you dump it in mud, you pull it out, and the AR is going to work just fine. You know, mud didn't get in there. Where, you know, an AK, you do the same thing, and there's crevices mud can leak into, things like that. So from the reliability standpoint, yes, I would say that AK is more reliable, possibly, than an AR. But pretty minimal difference it's i've you know i've had i've been around ars all my marine corps career and i don't remember any of them jamming to be honest with the exception of when we had shooting blanks with the bfas those you know those yeah that's yeah. not reliable um yeah, but but, you're, so <laughs> before i for you you're just to change the 60s though but about 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 a chink <laughs> when you were fake, right? That's a different story. Yeah. yeah. The 60s. That the, the guys when they used to do the bang, bang, bang and walk, like guys would the 60 would walk and be pretending to shoot and they'd go butta 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 chink and it'd be yep. jamming. Uh, See, but, and I carried a I, I was a saw gunner, M249 yeah. when I was in, in the infantry. And uh, I, I never had any jams that either. I love that gun. That was, that was my favorite gun. The saws. We used to get the barrel so damn hot you could see the bullets going down through them. I did that too one time. Yeah, it got white hot and you could see the bullets going in and it started to droop a little bit. Yes, yeah, you'll get that. The only thing is with you can't put the mag in Tax it though. dollars well spent. Yeah, yeah. If you put the mag in, you'll break the mag and it'll fuck up. But with a belt, it's great. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, it, yeah, that was one of the things when FN came on the market with their semi-auto. Dude, I, I sold some guns. I did what I had to do, but I bought that sucker, man. Yeah, yeah, it was crazy. But uh, that, sorry to do it, Jim, but I just laughing about, no, you're you're absolutely right. When I was in the Marine Corps as well, I don't ever remember having issues with the 16. You know, no. never remember having an issue or anything like that. And today our stuff is so dang good, but at the same time we can let, you know, anybody and their brother build something. And if they build the wrong Lego gun, you see problems, you know? And, oh yeah. Yeah. Of course. Of and, course. And, and that's it. But yeah, I mean, so get back to the AKs that yes. like, what's no, some, I have ADD and I'm easily sidetracked. Yeah, me so too. That's, me that's, too. that's your fault. man. I, I have, fault. I have adult ADD. Yeah. Squirrel, squirrel. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, um, the AK is really almost like a, a custom hand fitted weapon. Because when those things came off the assembly line, there's a little old lady there with a hammer, uh, ball peen hammer and, and a chisel or whatever she had. She's custom fitting that gun, the bolt, you know, to the uh, breech and all that stuff. So it's, you know, really a, a handmade gun to some extent. But the, um, nah, I completely forgot where I was going with this, back to the ADD thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, the real, you have the, the accuracy thing. That was kind of what I want to touch on. Yeah. Now, a lot of people, so they'll be shooting some com block military surplus ammo out of the AK and say, well, this isn't as accurate as my AR, but you know, the AR they're shooting some federal or some Hornady or something. That's definitely a big upgrade to the ammo they're shooting out of the AK, but then they'll say, well, the AK is not as accurate. If you, you know, for the most part in there, you know what, there's a lot of difference between the different countries that made the AKs. But in general, if you have a well-made AK and a well-made barrel, 
um, with good ammo, the AK is going to be pretty accurate. Not as accurate as they are, um, but it's it's way more accurate than people give it credit for. We've always, in, in side conversations, uh, I don't know if you know George Gardner from GA Precision. Um, we've, Na- yeah, uh, name sounds pretty familiar. Yeah, he's, he, he's pretty well known. But um, he, we'd always talk and threaten that we were going to build a custom SVD. <laughs> you know, like trick it out, put some money into it and see what we can get out of it. Because I had the same experience you just talked about. I did like Soviet weapons familiarization when I was in, uh, we, when we were in Korea, we went up to the DMZ and we did a, a couple, uh, two weeks with the army second ID sniper school up there. Their sniper school was only three weeks long. Um, <laughs> ours at the time was 12 weeks. And so, um, We went up and got to do two weeks of it, the second two weeks. We didn't do the first. We did the second and third. And one of those included a Soviet weapon familiarization fire. And, of course, Mm -hmm. like you said, it's all the comm block, garbage shit, right? You know, almost like battlefield pickup. And and when you shoot them, they're terrible. You know, they don't hit anything worth a damn. They're not a a 300-meter gun, and they're done. And, and, And so I think that totally you know uh, establish the th- thought process behind an AK where today as you're saying AK didn't stop in 1947 at moving forward you know what I mean they got their right. factory here they're doing stuff there's the aftermarket parts so you know they've had to improve it but I still go back when anybody ever says to me the first thing that comes in my mind, it was 1989 shooting a damn frigging, you know, battlefield pickup versions right. of stuff. Right, and, and the, there's a huge disparity in AKs from different countries. Right. Um, you have, I mean, some of the lower-end ones were meant, and, and that's a lot of the stuff that you see on the battlefield, which you speak. Um, a lot of those are not the quality AKs. Um, they're coming from countries that are basically just mass producing and getting as many out the door as they can because they want to make some money. Um, but if you get into like like the Polish AKs and the Bulgarians are are pretty accurate, you know, those AKs, they're going to be pretty accurate and they're pretty high quality. The machining on them is is, is going to be good, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's something people could take a look at if they want to kind of go in a different direction is, is, a, is a modern AK as as you know, I used to laugh and like I said, I used to make fun of it and say it's well, it was to get you a better room on an on or better seat on an airplane because it was like right after uh, some Japanese attacked an airport in in over there in uh, Asia, and they mm-hmm. used the AK, and I'm like, oh, they're trying to get a seat on the plane, you know, so they use their AK. But th- <laughs> yeah, we have that prejudice, you know what I mean? It's we're prejudiced against that platform and maybe that platform needs a a, a a visit and i know guys are there's 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 ak fans out there that just go over the top you know the same as we do but i think right. as far as my audience in the precision rifle guys i think we definitely have a present prejudice towards ak's right because i mean it's not a precision rifle it's never going to be uh, i shouldn't say never but it's it's not historically been a precision rifle. It's like I said, it's more accurate than people give it credit for, but it's not something you're going, you know, 
thousand yards shooting one of them away or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. So um, I, I did get to go a couple of years ago. Uh, Pioneer Arms flew me over to Poland and I got to tour their factory over there and take some really cool video and, and pictures and stuff and watching how they're made. It's just, it's an incredible process. It's really, really cool. And it really raised my uh, knowledge and awareness of AKs. Nice, nice. So Pioneer is one of those. Is there a couple brands you can throw out for people to look at like that Pioneer or somebody? I am, uh, you know, so I'll say they flew me over and everything. I'm, I'm not by any means paid by them. Um, there was a number of us gun riders, Dave Fortier. Um, maybe some of your listeners have heard of him. Yep. Um, we went over there and toured it and came back and I, I, I tested a couple of them. I got to shoot like the full autos over there. And then here, uh, you know, they sent me a couple. Actually, they sent me one for testing for an article, and then I purchased one. Uh, Classic Arms is their distributor. I purchased one through them. Um, I would recommend those because it's it's Polish, which they have a great reputation for AKs. And after watching their manufacturing methods, and they actually make their uh, Pioneer Arms has two sides to their company, and one side they're actually a military contract, and they have military contract in Europe. Uh, around the world with their AKs. So they're the AKs that come off the civilian side, it's the same AK, um, same build. It's just one goes to the U S pioneer arms was essentially set up to sell AKs here in the U S gotcha. gotcha. Um, Cause we're, w- there's not that many places around the world that where civilians are buying them, um, for sporting purposes, I mm-hmm. should say. Um, so, but you know, they set that up, but the, uh, I feel like the quality is really, really high, but their price is pretty reasonable. One of their new AKs, um, and I, I, I'm a big fan of their Help Up. Um, that one, I think it's like 800, 700, 800 bucks around in there. I don't remember what the MSRP is, but the um, what I like about the Help Up, that is the short uh, pistol version of the AK. Mm-hmm. So bec- because it's a pistol, they don't have to deal with 922R compliance. So the Hell Pup pistol is 100% Polish made, um, whereas their sporting rifles, the full-size AK rifles, they have to bring them in and 922R compliance and all that stuff. Gotcha, so gotcha. There's, you know, it's the, the bread, you know, the guts of it is, is still Polish. Um, most of it's still Polish, but, you know, the 922R parts are made in the U.S. Okay. Um, but they are, uh, my understanding, Pioneer Arms is making they're uh bringing that production in themselves in house so um before i know they contracted some of that out or, or something like that you know who you need to talk to is uh cj uh johnson uh dillard johnson he's the uh president of uh pioneer arms okay really super interesting guy your listeners would probably like uh listen to him okay yeah. if you've ever read the book carnivore uh jim tar wrote it jim tar from uh, guns and ammo mm-hmm um, the book carnivore is actually about, uh, CJ. Okay. So really interesting guy, but you ought to have him on the show. He can give you a thorough education on the AK because the, there's a lot of misconceptions out there and there's some misconceptions about Polish AKs as well. Um, this, you know, the city of Radom or Radom is, is where they're made. There's another company out there that does not have the original, uh, rights and license to purchase or, or excuse me, to produce the AK. Um, so they're making parts, but they kind of posture themselves like they are actually making the gun. Um, whereas Pioneer Arms and, and Interarms, that company is actually producing the full AK. 
the interarms. Didn't they used to do the Mac 11s and stuff? No, that you know, uh, I believe it's inner arms. I, I could be wrong on that. Okay, I thought inner arms. You know what? There's there, I get them confused because there's like inner arms and inner ordnance and oh, okay, yeah, because I, I thought inner arms you know, was just, like the Tech Nine and the no, uh, that's uh, uh, oh, what's the name? Can't think of what that's called. I actually have a Mac Mac uh, Nine or Mac Eleven slash Nine. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, I thought that inner arms are somebody growing up in the eighties and nineties. There was an inner arms that brought in a lot of these guns for some reason. It, it strikes me as a name, and maybe it was. You know, and that's one of the companies. Like I said, I get them mixed up. But the the inner arms because there was a big uh, distributor back in the eighties. They I was I was reading up on them. And they went out of business. But, yeah, they used to import all kinds of, of Yeah, stuff. so maybe I'm thinking them. But, yeah, that name does click to me as something. But that's pretty funny. So uh, we're, all, we're all going on to that hour and all that. Um, is there any – what projects you got working on? Any books in the pipe? Anything you could tell people and tease them up a bit? Or, uh, you know, I, it's easy to go on Amazon and under Rob Manning get your name uh, in, in the in the Glock books and the CZ book. But uh, are you – Yeah, cr- that's, that's Rob with two Bs, R-O-B-B. Yep, Rob Manning with two Bs. Um, yes. And, and uh, two N's. <laughs> <laughs> three three N's, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, right. Um, so, uh, yes, are you working on anything currently? I don't have any books right now. Um, I'm mostly freelancing, um, looking for lo- – I'd love another editor position. The only problem is a lot of magazines are kind of uh, going under, and, you know, it's kind of a – turbulent times i guess for the print industry and not just in the gun hemisphere but all print magazines yeah Um, yeah uh, yeah for now just i'm kind of freelancing i actually with this whole coronavirus thing i've been on lockdown and my i have three boys um 10 12 and 14 and i'm homeschooling them during this time so that's kind of become my main focus there you go weaponized math Give it to him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, actually, you know, for Christmas, we had a little session where I gave them each an AR, and we did a little uh, field stripping, and I taught them how to field strip it and assemble it, and then we we timed it and uh, had a good time. Nice, nice. That's the see. That's that's a proper upbringing right there, everybody. That cool. is, man. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna exit get us out of here. I'm gonna do the out music. Stay on the line. Uh, we'll end it, and then I'll just do the sign off and appreciate it. But this was a fun time. It was a nice conversation. Oh, uh, I think we I think there's enough interest there for everybody that I, I went outside of my normal vein and, and it just seemed like it flowed. And like I said, time flew when we were having fun, man. It was just kind of going and going. Um, it did, man. You get me talking about guns and I can talk forever. Yeah, yeah. But that's the best part about all this. So uh, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for the Gun Digest crew. Uh, like I said, my book, you can go on Amazon um, and you can put in my name under Frank Galley and stuff will come up. Rob, you can put under his name and his stuff will come up. But because uh, we, we are sharing the publisher that way and, and you'll be able to find us. But uh, thanks, everybody out there for listening. Thanks for sharing. Uh, thanks for commenting in the Podbean app and make sure you guys stay safe out there and, uh, you know, cough into your elbow. All right, Rob. Hey, thank Frank, you. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Yep. Anytime.